Hello and welcome to Policy Voices by Friends of Europe, an independent think tank with a difference. Each week from Brussels, we bring you powerful conversations with policy voices from around the world. Policy Voices talking policy choices. Welcome to Policy Voices. I'm Katerina Villanova, host of the podcast. Today, I bring you a conversation between Luko Callaghan-White, Program Manager for Climate, Energy and Sustainability at Friends of Europe, and Michaela Krishnan, partner at the McKinsey Global Institute. Michaela is the co-author of a new report recently published by MGI titled An Affordable, Reliable, Competitive Path to Net Zero. In the report, Michaela highlights that while there has been meaningful momentum towards achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement, the world is currently not on track to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius. So stay on that side to hear the conversation between Luko Callaghan-White from Friends of Europe and Michaela Krishnan from the McKinsey Global Institute. Michaela Krishnan, you're very welcome to this episode of Policy Voices. My name is Luko Callaghan-White and I'm the Program Manager here at Friends of Europe, focusing on energy and climate policy. Now, Michaela, you lead the McKinsey Global Institute's research on topics related to sustainable and inclusive growth, uh, including climate risk and the net zero transition, globalization, productivity growth, and gender economics. So a huge amount under your portfolio there. Uh, we're delighted you've joined us today. And in particular, to right, thank you, in particular to talk about uh, a recent report from the end of November on an affordable, reliable, competitive path to net zero, uh, which was published by McKinsey's Global Institute. Uh, just last month. So from my reading of this quite stimulating report, you, you, you highlight that you know a successful net zero transition is going to require us to achieve not one but four concurrent objectives, you know, emissions reduction, affordability, reliability, and industrial competitiveness. And speaking to you from Brussels, I know that these are really key issues uh, as we prepare to lead into a, a European parliamentary campaign. And so your, your research, as I understand it, really takes practical ways to address these objectives simultaneously through seven core principles that can help stakeholders from the private and public sector and leaders and thought leaders navigate what is quite a complex transition. In fact, you lead with that point being that this is an incredibly complex uh, undertaking that we're, we're endeavoring to, to succeed with. Um, and you begin with the report that highlights that based on a wide range of scenarios that you have uh, put together, that we're not going to see net zero in this century. Um, and before we dig into the report in, in any further detail, I know that you were recently at COP28 in Dubai. What was your experience like? And, and we're, at the moment, we're recording this as we're, we're entering the kind of the final stages of the, of the year's meeting as, as we begin to negotiate over, over text and the global stock take and the final reporting. So I'd, I'd be interested to know what your experience was and, and how do you assess the current state of international climate diplomacy? Yeah, wonderful and and great to be with you, Luke, um, on this on this podcast. Um, I, I think maybe let me start with um, why we did the research, right? Um, so as we undertook the research, we had a sense that there was meaningful momentum towards net zero, um, but that progress um, was still not at the pace that we needed to to reach our our global goals of of the Paris Agreement, which is limiting warming to ideally one point five C. Um, but, um, relative to pre-industrial levels and and um, if not well below 2C. Um, and so that was indeed what we found as we did the work, right? We had we found that in a variety of spheres, we've seen meaningful momentum. We have seen 
countries and companies make commitments towards net zero. We have seen climate finance start to flow. We have seen a variety of technologies start to become viable. Um, we've seen solar and wind penetration rise. We've seen electric vehicles increase as a share of overall vehicle sales. So in many ways, um, we are at a, a really fantastic moment when it comes to, to the net zero transition. On the other hand, um, indeed, as you said, we examined a whole set of scenarios that look at the world's current trajectory of emissions. So I want to clarify a little bit the point you made, which is it's, it, the conclusion of the work was not that we will not get to net zero by um, the end of the century. The conclusion of the work was based on our current trajectory of emissions, we are not on track to get to net zero. So we looked at about 23 different scenarios um, from the IPCC, from the IEA, our own uh, McKinsey scenarios that, that try and encapsulate what a current trajectory based on currently implemented policies, uh, current expectations on technological innovation, et cetera, where that would get us to. And what we find is that across these 23 scenarios, um, essentially none of them get to net zero even by the end of the century, and the world ends up at um, about two and a half degrees Celsius or even more warming by the end of the century. And so contrast that to where we want to be, which is according to most scenarios, getting to net zero by 2050 in order to limit warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. And so the conclusion from that, and as we think about um, about Dubai and, and COP, is this is going to be an enormously complex undertaking. Um, it's going to require um, large-scale build out of physical systems. So one of the things that I think people underappreciate about the, the transition is that it is a massive physical transformation. We're going to look to build power systems, for example, that are three times as large as today. We're going to look to dramatically scale up um, sources of renewable energy like solar and wind. Um, so this is large scale physical transformation of the world around us and looking to rebuild in the next three decades an entire energy material land use system that has been built over the last 200 years, right? So this is a pace and scale of transformation that is enormous. This is a massive capital allocation challenge. Um, our estimates would suggest today we're spending about $5.7 trillion on uh, a variety of these energy material and land use systems, everything from uh, power generation to, to the vehicles that we buy. That $5.7 trillion would need to scale up to $9.2 trillion um, over the next 30 years. Um, and so that's a, a scale up of capital of about $3.5 trillion, which is a, a massive increase in the amount that we're spending on these systems. Um, and it's not just an increase in capital allocation, it's a, it's a fundamental reallocation of capital. Today, we're spending about um, 60, 70% of that $5.7 trillion that I described on what I would call high emissions assets, things like uh, gas-based power, internal combustion engine-based vehicles. Going forward, we would need to take that 70% or so that we're spending today on high emissions and make that about 70% on low emissions technologies, things like renewable power or electric vehicles. And so it's not just a scale up of capital, but a reallocation of capital. And so those are two different kinds of challenges, the physical transformation, the capital ch challenge, and as our work highlights, it's not just about the transition alone, it's about doing so affordably, reliably, and competitively. And so all of this makes this a really complex undertaking. Um, and that was what we saw uh, when we, when we, when I look back on my experience at COP, the good news, um, the meaningful momentum that I described, very, very obvious, um, a, a lot of momentum and excitement on the part of the private sector, a lot of discussions about how we get climate finance to work, a lot of discussion about how we build out the supply chains and the support infrastructure, 
but also this this very real recognition that doing so is going to be complicated and is is going to have to take into account not just emissions reduction but affordability reliability and competitiveness right well thank you for that and indeed i think what the the report does clearly highlight and what maybe we've seen from the beginning with the loss and damage fund agreement at cop 28 is that there is you know key moments of meaningful progress and maybe we're not quite aware of the scale and 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 the, and the amount of progress we need to make i wonder if i could stick with the the um the question on capital allocation uh, you know you you highlight the importance of building these effective financial mechanisms to to drive that capital where it's needed um and also of course not just as you say scaling up capital but the reallocation of capital um, this has been a, a big focus for the European Union over the last number of years in particular. And I'm wondering from, from your perspective and from your work overall, are you seeing any particular barriers to the reallocation of capital? Are you seeing something that, in fact, if we were to readjust just slightly here or there, we would see a lot of these issues addressed more speedily, for example? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think if you think about why this capital allocation is hard. Um, there's a few different things that that sit underneath that, right? The first is what we're talking about is spending on different forms of technologies than we've spent on in the past. And many of these different forms of technologies come with entirely different risk return profiles. Um, so one of the things we looked at is if we take the entire amount that we need to spend on low emissions investments over the next even 10 years, right? Forget about the next 30 years, but the next 10 years, how much of that is likely to flow if you think about these new technologies being cost competitive or having a similar risk profile to traditional alternatives. And what we found was that with current policy frameworks, with current expectations of technological innovation, only about half of the amount that we would need to spend, only about 50% would flow under these uh, our current expectations of cost competitiveness and our current expectations of how risks would evolve. And so there is a big hurdle that we need to still um, overcome in terms of making new technologies viable and making these new technologies cost competitive. That's one kind of challenge which makes the supply of capital, as it were, challenging. Equally, it also makes the demand for capital challenging, right? So if I am, uh, for example, what are typically called hard to abate sectors, if I am the steel sector, if I am the cement sector, if switching to these new alternatives is going to raise production costs, uh, that makes it more challenging to invest in these new alternatives. So there's challenges both on the supply and the demand side of, of capital. Um, and those challenges apply to driving the flow of capital towards specific technologies. They also apply when it comes to driving the flow of capital towards specific regions. So one of the other analyses that we've done is we've looked at developing countries um, and how much they would need to spend on the transition. And what we find is that developing countries would need to spend about three times as much as a share of GDP relative to the developed world on the net zero transition, as well as just the growth that they would need to see in any case in their economies, right? Um, and so these are the parts of the world where the, the imperative to spend is higher and it's it's a it's a bigger quote unquote burden as a share of GDP, but raising financing may be more challenging. So there's challenges both when it comes to driving capital towards specific technologies that we need to invest in, as well as specific regions that we need to invest in. And so what does that mean in terms of solutions? Now, unfortunately, I don't think this is just tweaks on the side, um, and I don't think there is a silver bullet, but there's an entire set of things we need to do when it comes to to driving the flow of capital, um, which we, I mean, the good news is we've started to see a lot of momentum towards many of these areas, but we need more. So what are examples of that? Uh, I think, firstly, we need to um, think about not just using one part of the quote-unquote capital stack, so not just project finance, for example, for solar and wind, that's 
kind of the, the mental model we have of climate finance now, let's give a loan to a solar wind project, and we need that, we need more of that. But we also need to think about other parts of the capital stack that we're maybe not using as much. So one example of that would be uh, corporations using their own balance sheets, using their own profits that they, they make to reinvest into low emissions technologies. And to do that, we need to create the right incentives for companies to want to make these kinds of investments. Um, as another example, and this was the, a big conversation at COP, is this whole question of blended finance, right? So if you have technologies that are slightly less cost competitive relative to traditional alternatives, come with slightly bigger risk compared to traditional alternatives, can you use various forms of public capital, um, whether it's through multilateral development banks or through domestic governments, to try and increase the cost competitiveness, lower the risk of low emissions technologies relative to high emissions technologies. And there's now a lot of conversation about how do we get this, this so-called blended finance of public and private capital working together to flow more effectively. Um, a third kind of example in terms of finance is just better data. So part of the challenge with, um, with making low emissions investments is that uh, capital providers may not fully be able to evaluate the risk and the return of these new projects, again, because many of these are relatively new and new forms of investments. And so we've seen a lot of momentum towards disclosures on the part of corporations, understanding the emissions footprints that, that companies have, understanding the kinds of initiatives they're, they're taking to move from uh, so-called brown um, investments to so-called green investments. And so better data, again, can help drive capital to the parts of the world and the, the technologies that we need. So as you see, it's not just one silver bullet, unfortunately, but this mosaic of things that need to come together to get capital to flow where we need it to flow. No, indeed. And I think it's a great microcosm of thinking about how we, we, we deal with the transition as a whole, you know, the need of, of walking and chewing gum at the same time. It's interesting, maybe just picking up on the last point about uh, access to better data, we're, we're at Friends of Europe focused on a, a series of activities related to sustainable finance and working groups that we've been conducting. And this has been the key point that's emerged from some of our conversations with stakeholders, the need for better data in, in, in Europe as well. Um, but I, I, when you were speaking there in particular, I was, I was taken when you were speaking not only about the supply and demand challenges, but also in particular consideration for developing countries. And we recently published a piece by the former First Lady of Ghana who said that the failure to fundamentally fix the international climate finance system is ensuring that not only are we not receiving the type of climate finance that is that we have agreed, that we have signed up to, but actually we are being ourselves burdened with greater debt in terms of offsetting the, the, the adaptation uh, matters and so forth. And I think it's an interesting way of, of recalibrating the, the, the consideration of international climate finance as a whole. And I, I think when you were mentioning that, it got me thinking about another element of, of the report. And in particular, it, it, it resonates with something else that we're working on here at Friends of Europe. And that's a core piece of our work on a renewed social contract for Europe. And we're putting together 10 policy choices that we're going to present uh, to, to thought leaders before the European elections next year. And we're arguing one of them is the need to engage the private sector way earlier as an actor for social good. And I suppose one of the challenges that's highlighted in this report as well is that, you know, a lot of the major actions that are taken now are going to be exchanged for benefits in future decades. This is something that you highlight explicitly. So with that in mind and thinking about the private sector having a role earlier on in the legislative process, how do you think the private sector can be encouraged to pay a more leading role in the context of the transition? Yeah, that's a, um, a really interesting uh, point. And, you know, as as we talk to um, the private sector, and one of the things we actually mentioned in the report as well is, um, as, as, we, as we've talked about, the transition is not just about emissions reduction, but doing so affordably 
reliably and competitively. Um, and it's important that we approach the transition with all of these four pillars in mind. Um, otherwise, there's a risk that not only are these fundamental systems that we rely on for energy or for materials, not only is there a risk that they don't function in the way that we want them to function, right? They don't function affordably, reliably, and competitively, but equally there's a risk that momentum towards the transition itself is derailed. Um, and so why I say that in the context of the private sector is that it's important for the private sector to, um, in the, the the consideration of affordability, reliability, and competitiveness will be important for the private sector in and of themselves, right? As they think about their approach to the transition, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, so that that's one one thing to to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is the role of the private sector in helping enable affordability, reliability, and competitiveness. So let me talk about each of these these two independently, right? So when it comes to the private sector, one of the things we found as we speak to our clients across the world, across sectors on this topic is um, the imperative to act to the private sector or for the private sector will come when the private sector sees the issue of emissions reduction as a core value creation agenda for themselves. Um, and this is tied to the, the pillar around affordability. Um, now, the good news is we've seen enormous um, evidence that there are many things the private sector can do that can both drive down carbon and drive down their own costs. Um, and you see this when it comes to the private sector as a microcosm, you see this also when it comes more broadly to the transition. So one of the things we highlight in the research is um, today we're emitting about 55 gigatons of carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide equivalents. The IPCC estimates that by 2030, about 19 gigatons of that um, could be abated. So emissions could be reduced to the tune of 19 gigatons at uh, $20 a ton um, or less in cost. And so that's an example where if the private sector were to were to implement many of these initiatives, this is things like energy efficiency, this is things like uh, material efficiency, this is things like circularity, this can, for the private sector, for individual companies, both help them reduce their emissions footprint and reduce their cost. That's an example of value creation as an agenda for companies, right? Another example is as we undertake the transition, there are many different kinds of opportunities that get created for entirely new markets. Um, and I think about this often as a, concent a set of concentric circles, right? So at its core, it's a set of low emissions technologies, meaning things like electric vehicles, things like solar and wind, things like green hydrogen. But it, that's not the only set of opportunities created by a net zero transition. There's then the, the concentric circle that sits around that, that supports those technologies. So this is things like um, uh, new forms of materials that we need, um, you know, rare earth metal metals, lithium, cobalt. It's uh, refining and extraction of those materials. It's new forms of manufactured goods. You're actually manufacturing a solar panel. You're manufacturing a, an electric vehicle. And then the final concentric circle that sits around that is the entire services and support infrastructure that is needed for the net zero transition. Things like charging infrastructure, things like digital measurement services for emissions. So there's an entire slew of opportunities that are created that become opportunities then for companies um, to leverage their strengths, leverage their ability to innovate, leverage their ability to develop new products and services, and actually gain opportunities for value creation. So that, I think, is the first point that's really important to remember, is that companies approaching this will approach this and should approach this with a value creation lens, and there are enormous opportunities for value creation. The second side of this is the, that for policymakers engaging with private sector companies, it's very important to recognize that as they look to achieve these multiple objectives of emissions reduction, affordability, reliability, and competitiveness, 
the private sector is a key agent, a key actor in actually driving affordability, reliability, and competitiveness, right? Um, much of the emissions that happen across the world are emissions that are generated by the private sector. And so the private sector needs to be an engaged actor in this transition. The private sector is also the entity for innovation. So we're talking about making more technologies viable and making them um, cost competitive relative to traditional alternatives. It will be vital that the private sector is engaged in that agenda. So it's both important, I think, for the private sector and of them for themselves as they look to participate because it can be a source of value creation. But it's also important for policymakers to engage the private sector as agents of change. Absolutely, and, and that's, that's I think that dovetails quite neatly with what we're what we're advocating for as well. And I think it also um, echoes the importance of narrative, which is that you know we see that there are opportunities in the development of the transition to net zero that this brings, as you mentioned, with the innovation in the private sector with key roles to help to accelerate the affordability, reliability, and competitiveness elements. Um, when you were mentioning there that those those components, and in particular thinking about energy efficiency, material efficiency, and circularity, it got me thinking of you know a topic du jour, uh, probably uh, as much in the United States as it is in, here in Europe, is thinking about those rare earth materials that we'll need uh, in our electric future. And one of the points that, that 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 is quite detailed in the report is the question of revamping energy markets, preparing them for electrified future and managing both the existing and emerging energy system, systems in, in, in parallel. Um, we, we hosted the, the World Energy Outlook uh, launch in Brussels in, in, in late uh, October, and Fatih Barol said, if, if one thing is clear, that energy markets are undergoing global transformations and that the energy markets of 2030 will be fundamentally different uh, to that one of today. Thinking about those key elements of renewables in, in energy in Europe, thinking about wind and solar, in wind, we're seeing profitability is, is down quite a bit this year. Um, and I think that there are some concerns among industry stakeholders here that what we're going to see is what we saw 15 years ago with respect to solar energy moving to to, to China for, for production. And there's a there's a concern, I would say, among many uh, in, in the European bubbles about questions of de-risking, questions of what does economic strategic autonomy mean in the context of the United States Inflation Reduction Act. So I think a lot of those industrial uh, uh, questions of competitiveness, which is obviously at the core of what this report is seeking to address as well, reliability, of course, being another factor, these are hovering, uh, from what I can tell, right around the, the, the specter of this transformation of energy markets. So I wondered if, with those in mind, if you could maybe elaborate on, on your thinking on these points. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you um, really take what you're saying and take a giant step back, right, I think what it what it highlights is that the transition, again, it's not just about one agenda of emissions reduction, um, but it's about many, many different agendas playing together and therefore doing so affordably, reliably and competitively. And so what does that actually mean in terms of what how stakeholders approach the transition? One element of how they approach the transition, which we've already talked about a little bit, is that um, we need to allocate spending effectively, right? So, and by by that I mean we need to think about the quote-unquote low-hanging fruit, low-cost measures like energy efficiency, um, circularity, methane reduction, right? That we are simply not investing enough in today. Again, this was 19 gigatons by by 2030 that cost less than 20 dollars a ton, um, and we are spending on many of these technologies, by the way, many of these solutions, less than 20 percent of what we need to spend to get to net zero. So that's one example of allocating spend effectively. Another example of allocating spend effectively is a lot of what we talked about related to financing, 
A third example is the whole of innovation and actually driving down costs of more expensive solutions. So there's a lot that we need to do when we think about the emissions reduction pillar of this, this four-part agenda, as well as the affordability pillar of this four-part agenda, to, to spend, spend more wisely. However, if we also think then about the other parts of this, 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 this set of four pillars, right, affordability, reliability, and competitiveness, that alone is going to be insufficient to address these other elements. And so what, the, what our research highlights is the importance of also paying careful attention to redesigning physical and energy systems that we need for the transition and navigating risks and opportunities. So let me talk about some of this a little bit more. Um, one of the growing realizations from the transition, as I said, is this massive need to scale up the physical world around us, right? And scale up and transform the physical world around us. That will come with entirely different needs for materials, for manufactured goods, for labor, for land, for supporting infrastructure. And so we need to build out this entire set of inputs that we need to support these end low emissions technologies. Um, now, on the one hand, you know, that sounds very simple. Um, the moment there is a signal, say, for demand for low emissions technology, the supply chain gets magically built is maybe one, one thing. But, but there are two different kinds of challenges with that. The first kind of challenge is that uh, building out these supply chains, building out these inputs often comes with long lead times. So one of the things that we found in the work was if it, if, if it comes to scaling up, say, mining capacity, doing that can take anywhere from 3 to 12 years. Uh, permitting in the U.S. for transmission and distribution lines can take anywhere from five to twelve years, right? So a lot of these processes that we have in place, they, they, they or a lot of these inputs that we need to put in place will come with long lead times. That's one kind of challenge. The other kind of challenge is that they can come with um, concentration risks. So when it comes to refining capacity, for example, a lot of the refining capacity that that exists around the world for these core materials we need for the transition um, exists in one or two countries in the world, right? Um, and the, while concentration on the one hand can increase efficiency, what it can also do is create um, risks or challenges if the, the source of that refined capacity is compromised for some reason, right? Um, and so as we think about building out this entire infrastructure that we need, all of the inputs that we need for the net zero transition to do so reliably, we need to understand and identify where bottlenecks might occur, either because of lead times or because of concentration, anticipate those bottlenecks and try to address them. And there are various ways one could address them, right? One could address them by um, finding ways to unlock supply, so creating more supply capacity um, for um, for end um, companies in an ecosystem, um, finding suppliers that they can set up contracts with in advance to secure supply of, of key inputs. It can also come with de managing demand um, through things like circularity and material efficiency or through innovation to change how much material you need or what kind of material you need in a given process. So there are many things that we can do to manage this, but we need to anticipate it and plan for it and not assume that it's going to automatically happen. Um, Another kind of example of, of, of how we need to redesign our, our physical and energy systems is indeed energy markets. So today, when it comes to our provision of electricity, uh, we are used to thinking about an electricity system that uh, does not have a large amount of intermittent renewables and is not the sole provider of energy in, in the world, right? We also get a lot of energy for transport, for example, from oil. Now, if we imagine um, this net zero future, 
what the, the net zero future that we're all working towards involves large scale electrification. And so electricity, not energy, but electricity becomes the backbone of the economy. Um, it's a three times, as I said, larger electricity system. And it's an electricity system that relies on intermittent sources of um, electricity provision, not things like gas or um, uh, coal power or diesel power that uh, are, are not variable and, and uh, um, are available whenever we need them, right? And so this requires an entirely redesigned electricity system that uh, allows for uh, incentivizing the build out of a larger electricity system that allows for the build out of backup capacity that allows for the massive build out of, tra of transmission and distribution capacity. And so again, what we're talking about is a rewired world that looks very different from the world of today. And so we need to anticipate and plan for that and get ahead of that if we need to solve this, this issue of affordability and reliability when it comes to the energy system. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, reflecting on your, your comment there about the need to be uh, uh, scaling up in terms of, of of the kind of the physical components of the transition, one element in which is, I think, often overlooked, certainly here in Europe, is the, the investment that we need in our grids. Uh, and and the the need to have more interconnected electricity grids, and obviously that uh, a word that's resonating with me not only in your in your, in your comments just now, but in our conversation is also about flexibility. You know, flexibility in a power system that that can balance with with intermittent sources in the grid. Uh, flexibility in recognizing bottlenecks where they're going to emerge. We're all familiar with the kind of the post COVID uh, um, supply chain issues that we've had, and e equally in Europe, the the um, the processes with respect to permitting and the question of the concentration of resources has huge impact, of course, on on the nature of a just transition, which itself has has an impact on on narrative and and further on on, on innovation. Um, I, I'm conscious that that we've covered a huge amount of ground. Um, so I want to, to, to thank you so much, Michaela, for your time in bringing us through the many key elements of the report, but also highlighting the core uh, essence of, of the, the need really to, to, to allocate um, sufficiently for the transition to both be about emissions reduction, affordability, reliability, and competitiveness. This is something that we're going to continue to work on here at Friends of Europe. Uh, your report is very helpful in instructing uh, some of our own research. So look forward to, to reading your, your next contribution to this really important topic. And uh, hopefully by the time this, uh, this uh, podcast is recorded, COP28 has come to a conclusion uh, and we can look forward uh, to, to, the, to the next COP and also uh, to receiving an update on, on your, your excellent work and building on those scenarios, recognizing that we have had meaningful progress, more to be done. Absolutely, Luke, and it's it's been a pleasure to to be on with you. Um, maybe just to close, one thing I will say is, um, you know, this philosophy of approaching the transition not just with one objective but with four, um, the four being emissions reduction, affordability, reliability, and competitiveness. I found is actually a very helpful way to think about a, a path forward, right? Um, uh, and the way that I describe it to people is. If we don't keep these four objectives in mind, and if we focus only on one, there's a risk that we, of course, compromise the affordability, reliability, and competitiveness of very important systems that underpin the global economy. There's also a risk that we derail the momentum that we have towards the transition already. On the flip side, though, if we were to keep these objectives in mind of affordability, reliability, and competitiveness, it could actually boost momentum towards the transition. So capital is more likely to flow towards technologies that are affordable relative to their alternatives. Citizens are more likely to embrace a transition that relies in a, that results in a reliable energy system. Um, uh, individual employees are more likely to embrace a transition that actually creates jobs and creates opportunities. So the more that we can use these these four pillars of a, of the transition 
um, in keep these in mind as we design our our pathways and our our policies and our private sector actions going forward. I think it will only boost momentum towards the transition, um, and it gives us therefore this compass um, on how we how we make progress and move forward. Indeed, it, it's it's not only that kind of that positive reinforcing. I also think it's something that it, it provides. You know, you hear a lot about people saying, "Well, how do we do it? How do we do the transition?" Something that's tangible, not nebulous. Something that is concrete and and can provide that uh, maybe to to even in, enhance that positive uh, reinforcement. Um, wonderful. Thank you for that positive and upbeat ending to what was a really interesting and stimulating conversation. Look forward to the next time. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Luke. Thank you. Thank you for staying on that side to listen to the conversation between Luke O'Callaghan-White from Friends of Europe and Michaela Krishnan from the McKinsey Global Institute on the report An Affordable, Reliable, Competitive Path to Net Zero. This was the last episode of 2023. Thank you to everyone who stayed on that side and tuned in weekly. During the break, we invite you to listen back to the episodes we released in the last two months. From health and AI, Polish and Dutch elections, COP21 and racism in Europe, we covered a lot. Now it's time to take a break, but Policy Voices will be back in early January. Don't forget to subscribe to Friends of Europe's podcast wherever you listen to know when we're back. I'm Katarina Villanova and until then, happy holidays and a happy new year. <laughs>